Uh, it's good to be together. Uh, as many of you know, as Jim alluded to as he prayed, uh, this morning we begin a seven-week series called Explore God, during which uh, time we're going to be dealing with kind of looking at seven big questions that lots of people, probably most of us, have asked at one time or another. Those questions up on the screen now are, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Is Christianity too narrow? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible reliable? And can I know God personally? And many of us have wrestled with some of these questions. Some of us have struggled with some of these questions. Maybe many of these questions, maybe all of these questions, or similar kinds of questions. And so whether you're a guest with us here this morning or you're online and you've been with us online for a little while, or maybe you've been a part of a church for your entire life, maybe you've been consciously a Christian or a follower of Jesus for decades, regardless, uh, we all have questions and questions like these. We are in this together. I would wager that none of us are without questions, but I would also encourage you to be leery of the person who says that they have no questions of their own. When I'm around people who convey that they have only answers and no questions, I sort of turn up the knob to 10 of my discernment meter. And yet there are answers of various sorts to these kinds of questions and other questions that we ask. Uh, we're going to begin exploring in the scriptures in just a moment uh, this big inquiry. But first, let me pray one more time. God, open us to yourself. Grant us the gift of an attentive mind and heart. Help us to listen and see, and by your grace and with your Spirit's help and involvement, become. Continue to shape and reshape us as we continue as best we can with the resources we have to turn to you, to face you, and to listen. Help us, save us, rescue us. Have us as your own, as you intend. We love you. Thank you for loving us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate or are in any way inconsistent with your word and your words, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does life have a purpose? Other ways of asking this big question might include, does life have meaning? Do our lives matter? Why are we here? Or are human beings simply the result of some primordial soup? More personally, why do I exist? Does my life have a purpose? Does my life matter? What is the meaning of my life? Can my life have meaning? Why am I here? all of which are very human questions. Somewhere along the line, most of us, Christians and non-Christians, followers of Jesus and not, consciously and unconsciously, ask such questions. I remember having questions like this as early as middle school. 
way back then? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Where do I fit in? What's my purpose? And if there is a purpose for my life, what is it? I don't know at what age people typically begin to ask questions like these. I had some very unique things going on in that season during those years of my life that I think prompted such questions. And it makes sense, I think, that people begin to ask those questions about that time and then in high school. And then as we graduate from high school, some go to college, begin to ask, what's it all about? Why am I here? What's my purpose? If there's a God, what am I supposed to do? How am I called to that person? Then over the course of the next few years in our lives, we begin to ask those big picture questions as we sort of enter the big world. Why am I here? What am I gifted for? Do I have a purpose? What's my calling? What does God want for me? Where do I live? What do I do? Who do I live with? Do I get married? And then for many people, these questions may not come up as often in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Not as often. But as one moves toward retirement and then into retirement age, it seems that these kind of questions come up again and more often. I've gotten to this stage of life and now what? What's it all about? What have I done with my life up to this point? Sometimes people ask simply reflectively, but sometimes with regrets or uncertainty. And what am I going to do now with the rest of my life, regardless of how I see things looking back? What am I going to do with the years I have left? What am I called to? Is there a purpose? Is there a meaning? That's exactly the focus of Bob Buford's best-selling little book, Halftime, which encourages people at or before that stage of life to take stock of their lives up to that point and, two, to consider how they might shift their focus for the second half of their lives from success to significance, which is actually the subtitle of his book. And then there's this, according to medical doctor Dilip Jesty, senior associate dean for the Center of Healthy Aging and distinguished professor of psychiatry and neurosciences at the University of San Diego, uh, UC San Diego School of Medicine. Pretty, pretty big title. He writes, after age 60, things begin to change. People retire from their job and start to lose their identity. They start to develop health issues and some of their friends and family begin to pass away. They start searching for the meaning in life again because the meaning they once had has changed, is changing. The purpose of their lives now is different and sometimes lacking. This brings to mind, it brought to mind for me yesterday, the character in the movie Shawshank Redemption named Brooks who some of you remember uh, was in prison for decades, but it also served during his decades in prison as prison librarian, uh, managing the prison library and delivering books one by one to prisoners in their cells. For literally decades, his reason for living, his reason for going on, bringing people something they could enjoy. And then all of a sudden, he is surprisingly, almost surprisingly, paroled from prison, put out into the real world, which we think is what every prisoner's dream would be. But for him, it took away his purpose for living, leading tragically shortly thereafter to his taking his own life because it had no meaning or purpose. 
As human beings, we need meaning and purpose in our lives. Born in 1905, Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist. In 1942, just nine months after his marriage, Frankl and his family were sent to the Nazis' Therensiestadt concentration camp. His father died there of starvation and pneumonia. In 1944, Frankl and his surviving, the surviving member of his family were transported to Auschwitz, where his mother and brother were murdered in the gas chambers. His wife, Tilly, died later of typhus in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Almost miraculously, Frankel himself was still alive, barely, in 1945 when the Allies liberated Germany and all of the concentration camps. Though by that time, Frankel had spent three years, three horrendous years in four different camps. The next year, 1946, Frankel authored a book about his experience in the concentration camps that also described the psychotherapeutic method that he had developed, which involved identifying a person, a purpose in a person's life. Frankel observed during his years in those concentration camps that those prisoners who were in touch with some identifiable purpose in their lives, the completion of tasks, caring for another person, or finding meaning by facing suffering with dignity, and there was a lot of suffering to face with indignity, significantly increased an individual's chance of surviving their dreadful, horrendous, awful circumstances. And he titled his little book, Man's Search for Meaning. And many of you know this, many of you have probably read this, more than 75 years later, the Library of Congress has declared man's search for meaning, that little book, to be one of the 10 most influential books in America. It's sold more than 16 million copies now in 54 different languages. It has gone through more than 70 printings. Let's print as many as we think people will buy, and that's enough, 70 different times. Do you think people are searching for meaning in our world? Do you think people are searching for purpose? They are. We are. We do. Two weeks ago, I met a young pastor who's planning a church in San Jose, visited with him for a few minutes. He told me about how he's connecting with lots of young tech workers in San Jose and about how they're making lots of money, living the good life, sort of have everything they dreamed of. And they're all asking, this young pastor said, they're all asking, is this it? Is this all there is? I thought there would be more. I thought there would be more meaning and purpose in all of this. Is this what life's about? They've got great jobs. They love where they live. They love where they work. They've got more money than they expected. They're getting married. Some of them are having children. And they're wondering, what is the meaning of life? To which author and pastor John Mark Comer speaks poignantly when he writes, ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Tragically, we continue to chase after our desires ad finitum. The result a chronic state of restlessness or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which lead to a life of hurry, a life of busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless. And this cycle spirals out of control. 
And yet, people like us often do not face these things head on. Instead, we fill our lives with many things or we seek fulfillment and meaning and significance and purpose and contentment and happiness in and through knowledge and wisdom and wealth and power and expertise and experiences and pleasure and fame and security and our bodies and others' bodies through children and families, all of which sounds like a man in the Bible named Solomon. King Solomon, third king of Israel. He too was a searcher. And in the Bible is a book that sort of catalogs his search that's attributed to him as author. That book we know is Ecclesiastes, which begins with these words. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Meaningless. And in fact, 38 times over the 12 chapters of this book of Ecclesiastes, the author declares, announces, exclaims, meaningless, meaningless, about a number of things he had obtained and possessed and experienced. Solomon was the guy who had everything. He's the guy who built the temple. He was considered the wisest person in the whole world. He had everything he wanted. He built the temple. He had experiences. He had fame. He had notoriety. He had pleasure. He had luxury. He had hundreds of wives and concubines. He had everything that someone in Silicon Valley could ask for or want. And after everything in the book of Ecclesiastes, he said, I had this. I achieve this, I possess this. It's all meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. He conquered enemies. He had incredible wealth, meaningless. Which brings to mind the words of the not so always quotable Jim Carrey, but nevertheless, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Solomon arrived at a similar place. It's all meaningless. The Hebrew word can be translated vapor or air or mist or wind or smoke. It's all gone. Philosopher, uh, theologian, author Peter Kreeft calls King Solomon the first existentialist, noting that Solomon experienced, quote, modernity's greatest fear, which is not so much the fear of death, but the fear of meaninglessness, of vanity, the fear of nothingness. When a man or woman comes to the hope for end of all his or her striving and there's no joy, no satisfaction, no peace, then what? Then perhaps there's finally space for God. If wisdom, pleasure, wealth, power, duty, service, even honor or religion have left a person feeling empty and unsatisfied, perhaps that's an indicator that that person, that we are made for something else. C.S. Lewis once wrote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Can you identify with that seemingly insatiable desire? What if the unfulfilled expectations, the disappointments, the unmet longings of this world were actually signposts or prompts from the heavens, from eternity, calling out one's name, calling out one's name. There's more, there's different, there's above, there is good, there is true. Augustine of Hippo, who was maybe the most important, and it's kind of fun that his last name wasn't Hippo, but that's where he was from, and it's a city in North Africa, Augustine, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest of the early church fathers, went through his own deep angst and reached the same conclusion, writing, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in thee. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is exactly why when we chase after all of the things Solomon chased after, we arrive often at nothing. Even with the accumulation of many things and often good things and access to good things, there's still this deep restlessness that nags at us. And the point of that restlessness is and always has been to lead us home. As C.S. Lewis says, to alert us that maybe we're on the wrong road, but that there is something out there or someone out there leading us back into a relationship for which we were created in the first place in a world of meaninglessness and vapor and smoke, wind, God, as it turns out, is the one true solid, the only one or the only being on whom and in whom we can truly rest. Quoting the Greeks of his own time, the Apostle Paul is quoted in chapter 17 of the book of Acts as saying, In him, in other words, in God, the Father of Jesus, we live and move and have our being, agreeing even with the pagan Greek philosophers. In him is our life. In him, in God alone, do we have our being? Do we live and move? In God and ultimately God alone, do we live, move, have our being? But there's more to it than that or just that. As Paul and Augustine both well understood, the one in whom we have our being and in in whom purpose, meaning, and significance can be found is not a lifeless, heartless, impersonal being, but rather the furnace of love whom Jesus called Abba, Father, Daddy. And this God loves us not as we should be, but as we are. As we are and not as we should be because we'll never be as we should be. The God about whom we speak created the world out of love and in love and with love, and this God invites us into what can only be described as a transcendental experience of grace, of God's grace, of the grace of God, of the God of grace, which Jesus described in stories and parables, one of which paints a picture of a father who, though his son rebels, abandons, disrespects, and leaves completely with half of his wealth, the Father is always ready and eager to welcome home, to embrace, to love with no strings attached because the Son belongs to the Father, the child belongs to the parent. Welcome home. 
And the, and the Bible talks about a God who not only takes the initiative and who in Jesus Christ reconciles the world to himself, but also, in addition, gives grants purpose. He saves us and then offers opportunities to serve and to do and to bless and to make a difference. Uh, I've had to come to understand this, sort of think about it again from how I used to think about it. God doesn't save us because we have the ability to serve. God doesn't save us to serve. But once God saves us, rescues us, he gives us something to do. Do you understand the difference and the distinction? We're saved by grace, not in order to do something, but because we're saved. And once we're saved, rescued, loved, embraced, God gives us things to do, a purpose. And the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, not by anything you've done or can do or will ever do, so that no one can boast, and nevertheless, still, for we are God's handiwork, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God, having saved us in Jesus Christ, now has a purpose, a divine purpose, an eternal purpose, reason, significance, meaning for each and every one of us. Not long ago, David French, he's uh, one of my favorite kind of public square commentators, wrote about a book that for a while has been really kind of popular in Christian circles, evangelical Christian circles, uh, about marriage. The book is called Love and Respect, and its thesis uh, generally is actually taken from the book of Ephesians, uh, but the thesis is that in marriage and in conflict, a hus- a, the wife uh, most needs love and the husband most needs respect. And not just in marriage, but in all of life. David French disagrees and says, you know, especially for men, It's not love or respect that men most need in this life, but purpose, a reason, direction, meaning, a mission. And I I don't necessarily disagree. And to get to God's purpose, reason, mission, or calling for a person, Jesus said, usually begins by a person dying. Dying to their own wants, ambitions, desires, ideas, plans, vision, in order to accept and embrace and step into the purpose that God has for that person. In Jesus' own words to his students and followers, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, and the Greek word there is psyche or psyche, their, their, their person, not their physical, but who they are, Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. In other words, to discover God's purpose for one's life, a person must set aside his or her own purpose for her life. For example, such as all the things or sorts of things that Solomon sought for himself, and then God's purpose for a person will be revealed, and there will be joy in that. And there will be joy in that. First question uh, I learned way back when I was going through confirmation class four million years ago. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was this learning teaching document tool written uh, by the English in 1647, 
the first because it was the most important to them, the first question and then answer. And this is how they taught and this is how they learned. What is the chief end of man? What is our primary purpose? What is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To bring glory not to ourselves, to seek glory not for ourselves, but to seek glory for God. And to find joy in that and to enjoy him forever. It's one question with a twofold answer. Because our mission is to bring glory to God, to serve him and him alone. And there will always necessarily and inherently be joy in that. And this brings to mind to, for me always uh, Eric Little, a Scottish missionary to China, but before that a gold medal winning runner at the 1924 Olympics. You know his story from the movie Chariots of Fire. His best event was the 100 meter dash, uh, but they were running the 100 meter dash on a Sunday in the 1924 Olympics. That was an objection to his conscience, and so he switched events to the 400 meter, which we, he was not as good at. And yet he won the gold medal in world record time. And he said, I believe that God made me for a purpose. He made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He experiences joy in that as God was glorified. And God was glorified both in his running, which he did for God's glory, and through his eventual missionary service in China also for God's glory. So, in conclusion, God loves us. God loves you. Period. You are his beloved child. And, too, God has imbued your life with meaning through rescuing you, his beloved child, and by giving you talents skills, resources, a disposition with which to bless others, which will not only always bless you with purpose, but also with joy. You may not be an Olympic runner. None of you look like Olympic runners. <laughs> I don't. I don't think anyone here has won a gold medal. But God, according to what he has given you, already it loved, the talents, the gifts, the resources, the skills, the inclinations, the dispositions is calling each of us to deny our own ambition because it's like C.S. Lewis sort of says elsewhere, you don't get where you want to be by going straight there, but by following what God has for you and you end up there. What you really wanted in the end anyway, our heart's desire. Let's pray. Emptiness, emptiness, meaninglessness, meaninglessness, Solomon exclaimed, certainly to his own great frustration. Save us from that, God. Save us from the pursuits of the world, from our own idols, from the things that we want that we think will make us happy, but in the end fall flat. And save us to yourself, into your kingdom, into your life, through your spirit, daily, hourly, yearly, that we might live not only in you, but for you, for your glory, the byproduct of which we understand is always joy in Christ. Open to us 
the meaning and the purpose and the missions to which you have called each and every one of us according to your gifting, according to your grace. And, maybe you, and may you be glorified not only in each of our lives, but also in the church and the world. May this be so.